The reviews are in and Secrets is a hit. Listeners have described Secrets as priceless information, a personal cheat sheet, and binge-worthy career advice. And season three promises to bring you even more secrets on how to advocate for yourself, how to become a better ally, and how to get that coin. Your hosts, Keith Powell and Ricky Robinson, put in that work to reach the top of corporate America. And this groundbreaking podcast challenges you, as well as corporate America, to be better and do better. KP and PR will bring you more tips and tricks on how to advance in your career. So fill up those cups and welcome to season three. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Secrets. Ricky, what's going on, my brother? What's on your mind today? Man, hey, hey, hey. I'm excited, man. I have to start out by giving my brother, my main man, my brother from another mother, actually, one of my best friends. I got to give a birthday shout out to KP. Man, y'all, KP is turning 21 today, y'all. He, he's, he's a young Again. brother <laughs> You know, but look, this brother does so much out there for friends, for family, for the community. So I just want to give a special Secrets birthday celebration shout out to Keith. So make sure you go on to our Secrets LinkedIn and Facebook page or wherever you want to, you know, just but make sure you show him a little bit of attention. I want to make sure that he knows how special he is. Now, he don't like all of this fanfare, but we're going to give it to him anyway. That's all right. I appreciate that, Rick, and I appreciate you. But now let's just get, get down to business, all right? You know how I am. Let's get going. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, man, I think indeed we have a lot to talk about today. As y'all know on Secrets, you know, we've launched our platform to help underrepresented employees understand the secrets to get into the C-suite and to avoid the traps and pitfalls that Keith and I went through to reach the top. And again, it kind of felt like quicksand, you know, a lot of times that we're going through it. And one of the questions we get asked often, I mean, if not often, just about every time is how did we make it to the top? Did we have a plan? How did you get sponsored? So during this season, we will have like interviews with a variety of senior executives who have made it to the top and will answer these questions for you. That's right. And we're excited today to kick off our first interview of season three with Mr. Anton Benson. So just so you know, Anton and I were classmates in business school at Indiana University. And I just always remember how focused Anton was from the minute he stepped on campus, right? It was just like, you know what? I'm going to be running some stuff one day. I'm going to be a president, be you president, CEO. That's my jam. And he did it. And so we have Anton here to talk about his journey. So welcome to Secrets, Anton. It's great to have you. Well, Keith, first of all, let me just wish you a big happy birthday. I want to reiterate what your co-host has said. You know, I've known you for a long time, and uh, you've always been just a fantastic person. You know, never mind a great business person and, you know, and, and accomplish on your own right. Just a big happy birthday to you. But now, thank you. I'm glad to be here and talk to you guys. And we just really, you know, I want to give a shout out to you guys for doing what you do. You guys are inspiration. You guys, you keep it real. You give people really good information so they can do what they need to do. Hey, look, welcome, Anton. We are just excited, you know, to be able to have you on. KP has told me so much about you. And I know that kind of leading up to this, we kind of felt like Keith was kind of hoarding the friendship to himself. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But now that we connected, now that we family, man, I can't wait to hear your story and to break some bread, you know, together with you today on the Secrets Podcast, man. Great, great. I'm looking forward to it. 
So check this out. In this episode, what we plan to do for you all is we will talk with Anton about his path to the top, his sponsorship journey, and some of the challenges and triumphs he faced while climbing to the top. We'll also discuss what it's like as a Black leader driving and co-creating organizational culture and leadership development in the post-George Floyd era. We'll then provide some receipts on representation levels of Black executives in corporate America and why being intentional with your career plan is so very important. And we will close out with a double dose of secrets on what you can do to get on the executive career path and what leaders can do to build inclusive and equitable cultures for their employees. Yeah, and so before we jump in here, I'll give you my two cent version of Anton's bio, but he'll do a better job and add more color and tell me why I went wrong, so it'll be all good. But as I mentioned earlier, Anton and I were B-School classmates. Again, in B-School, Anton was a force of nature. He was just a beast. He was locked in which was amazing to see and be a part of. But after leaving IU with his MBA in marketing, I know Anton went on to join General Mills, had a great career at General Mills, had a variety of marketing roles there, left for a little bit, but then returned and helped with the acquisition of Pillsbury. And we are iconic brands, right? He helped with that acquisition. And then he got his breakthrough as a president starting to lead some divisions. I think the first one was the baking division. And then you went on to be president of several other divisions at General Mills, right? And right now, you're the president. You're the president of Wrigley Mars, North America, my friend. Yeah. And we know some of these iconic brands, M&M, Snickers, Twix, Skittles, Wrigley, Lifesavers. Making me hungry already. out there. <laughs> Go remember these brands, right? Big Red. <laughs> Ricky's truck is named Big Red. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the Big Red Juicy Fruit Hubba Bubba. I just remember in high school, I sold Hubba Bubba on the bus because I already had my finance hat on, right? I go buy a pack of Hubba Bubba for 25 cents and then I would sell a piece for 10 cents. So I was, I was doubling my profit, right? That's a serious margin there. You are working <laughs> I wasn't kidding. But anyway, that's my two-cent version of Anton's bio. But Anton, again, welcome to Seekers. We are so happy to have you here with us today. No, th- thanks a lot, Keith. I, you know, I, I think you did it justice. I think the thing I would say, look, by the time that I had met Keith and we were all finding ourselves at Indiana University Keller School of Business, that was an interesting way that I came there. You know, when I was coming up through uh, the college, you know, I was a student athlete in college. You know, I'd always been a great student all my life. And I, let's just say that I took full advantage of my uh, undergraduate <laughs> experience. I didn't make the kind of grades I was capable of making. My, my parents <laughs> reminded me of that, you know, during the time. <laughs> so by the time that I had worked and I worked at MCI Telecommunications prior to business school, Infidelity Investments, you know, by the time I came to graduate school, a little bit what keep talking about, I mean, I, I was focused, man. So I was trying to atone for my undergraduate sins a little bit academically, <laughs> but also like many kids, uh, actually young adults who come to business school, I was changing careers as well. And so I was quite focused, I would say, when I hit campus. I think it's safe to say that I was on 10 most of the time <laughs> when I was at IU. But but Keith didn't tell you, we also had a lot of fun at B-School as well. So while we were serious about what we were doing, you know, we had a good time. Yeah, you're right. You know, I've had the fortune of working at General Mills, fantastic company. I was there for 20 plus years. I left at the end of 16, you know, did some private equity work. And then for a brief time, I ran a co-manufacturing. I've been at Mars now for a couple of years, which is very interesting. Wait, look, Anton, man, it is like, 
I'm over here cheesing, you know, because it's like so great to have you here, right? Because we talk about how hard it is to get to the C-suite. We talk about all of these things and just to hear just the breadth of experience that you have so far. We told y'all secrets, listeners, we ain't playing. (laughs) You know, we trying to get you like the best examples of excellence, you know, on this show. So although I'm allergic to chocolate, okay, Mm -hmm. I do have to confess that every Sunday I was sneaking into my grandmother's purse and helping myself to some of that juicy fruit gum every Sunday, okay, smacking and getting popped in the head because I was chewing too loud, you know, so I remember that. And let me tell you, Marshawn Lynch is not the only brother that loves Skittles, okay? Anybody that comes into my office knows that big box of Skittles right there is community property, right? So, (laughs) again, so that is one of my uh, guilty pleasures for sure. But in all seriousness, we like to start out our interviews by just kind of getting to know our guests a little bit better. KP gave us a little glimpse of you and told us what your your career has been like, but we'd like to know maybe a little bit more. We want to peel back the onion a little bit. So where did you grow up, man? What was life like before you and Keith connected at Indiana? Really good question. And I'll, I'll tell people, you know, I'm a proud Southerner. So I was born in Jackson, Mississippi. Like, I think I had the best parents in the world, man. But I always tell people, look, when I was born, I'm dating myself a little bit. My parents didn't have the right to vote. They couldn't go down to the ballot box and advocate for themselves. And so my parents are very much, you know, sort of steeped in the civil rights movement, helping our community sort of get to uh, sort of voting rights. And I think for people of my generation and people I grew up around, you know, we felt like if our parents and our parents, you know, contemporaries sort of fought the wars to give us a chance, then we had the responsibility, maybe even the expectation that we had to walk through those doors of opportunity and do well. So I'll say just as a child, you know, I was always brought up, hey, let's go get it. Let's go make it happen, right? You know, let's treat people right. Let's work hard. Let's not make excuses. I expect you to do great things. And not from a pressure perspective, but it was just the next evolution, you know, of, of a generation. So I, I grew up with that. My parents were both incredibly supportive, but they had high expectations, <laughs> you know, and I think the combination of the support and the high expectations and then the broader community who acted in a similar fashion, I think, propelled me and my friends, to, like I said, to walk through those doors and not only walk through the doors, but also making sure that we're reaching back and helping others create doors for others and pulling people through as well. So I would say that's been a bit of a hallmark for me. I'm also the fifth of five boys. So I want you to imagine five boys growing up in the deep south in the 60s, 70s and 80s. You know, it was it was on, uh, you know, it was on in, in every sense of the word. And so I think I grew up in a beautiful community, a really beautiful community that propelled us, that supported us that gave us expectation, that gave us support that we could do it as well. And so I've always admired that about my parents, my parents' generation, my community. And I think I I try to bring some of that forward, you know, as I've become older and the things I've involved myself in, certainly in undergrad and grad school and sort of all through my career, it's just, I think the common element is I continue to be ambitious. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I am definitely pulling some people along with me. And I think that's my responsibility. That's my expectation. And the people around me and my friends and contemporaries, I think we have a similar mind on that as well. That's a great and powerful piece. I mean, growing up with five boys, I, I, we already know it was competitive around that crib. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? So, like, you could not help but still be competitive right now. Right. No, it, it was interesting. But, you know, but it was a beautiful kind of competition. Particularly as you get older, you start having your own kids. And uh, you know, I, I had a lot of continuity in, in my childhood. And I still know people who knew me when I was smaller, I still stay in a great amount of contact with people I grew up with who never left the state. They give you a sense of consistency. They give you a sense of 
even as we get older, you know, we still support each other in ways that we can, even though we don't live in the community anymore. And just give you a good sense of yourself, which I think is important as you start to, you know, go out and try to do your thing. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. And as we talked about before, I just remember you had like five or six roles mapped out in terms of how you're going to get from leaving IU to getting to be a, a president, right? Be a CEO. Right. Can you like walk us through some of your plan and some of your journey and what were some of those roles that really prepared you for getting to where you are right now? Yeah, no, you know, really good question, Keith. I, I will say that, yes, I'd always been, I would say, a motivated person. Whatever success looked like, I wanted it. You know, I was pretty clear around those things. But I would say, you know, as, as I left IU, I think one of the things that I tried to do was to be as planful as I could about my career. I knew that when I started my first job, like a lot of us were like, okay, I'm going to be here two or three years. I'm going to do something else. To be honest with you, that was my plan. When I imagine the kind of opportunities we all had in graduate school, you know, Minneapolis was not at the top of the list. <laughs> I don't think it was on the list at all. But like many of us, I sourced my opportunity at that point, at least the one in General Mills, through a Black MBA conference. The only thing I knew about General Mills were primarily the cereal products. I didn't know where it was. When I found out I was in Minnesota, it's like, I'm from the South. That's cold. That didn't work with me. And then, you know, I think it was a part of me growing up and trying to separate my comfort level from what I was trying to do in life uh, professionally. And I I think that was probably the first sort of like, really, all right, dude, you got to think about this in much more broader ways. And so when I made a decision to go to General Mills, you know, I was very focused about it. One of the reasons I went was because I felt like they had a very broad portfolio. I can get to learn a lot on very different types of brands in a fairly compressed time period. And to be honest with you, Keith, my plan was, okay, look, I want to stay five years, I'm going to get vested, and I'm out. (laughs) That was the plan. I knew enough to get vested, (laughs) and I was out. And oddly enough, as you had mentioned, I did leave General Mills. I left after my five-year mark, about two months after my five-year mark, but it was because I had come up on an opportunity to be an investor in a restaurant enterprise. When I left General Mills, you know, it was sort of a dramatic event, and they came and asked me would I come back, and when I left, I was newly married. As a matter of fact, I had married what five months prior to leaving. When I came back to General Mills, I was I had one kid and one kid on the way. My life perspective was changing. And it sort of brought me back into the corporate world as well. But I learned so much in that experience. Yes, the entrepreneurial thing, but I learned a lot about me as a leader. And, you know, some of those things weren't good. <laughs> you know, there were several of those things that weren't good. So I think probably for the first time in my adult professional life, I really took a look around how did I contribute to the problems? How do I take those learnings going back into a corporate organization to make me a better leader, to make me a more transparent leader, and to make me a more courageous leader as well? So I see that as a real turning point in my life professionally, for sure. Man, that's amazing. And I appreciate you being like so vulnerable to mm-hmm. kind of talk about that, right? Because what we talk about with some of our listeners and who are trying to find their way is you have to kind of go through that self-discovery. You got to figure out what you're good at. You got to figure out where you, where you have opportunities. You really have to figure out like your secret powers. You know, I know a lot of people make this up, but you do have to kind of figure out your secret powers to some degree. So I appreciate you really being vulnerable there, but as Keith and I know, being a brother in corporate America is hard, (laughs) right? I mean, and I'm being nice about how hard it actually is sometimes, right? Sometimes you feel like you got the weight of the Black community or the BIPOC community on your shoulders, right? So can you talk a little bit about some of the difficult moments 
you faced and how you overcame them? And specifically, was there a time or various moments when you felt like stepping away or just calling it? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, can you bring that to us? I can. You know, I, I, well, first of all, thanks for talking so directly about the topic, because, you know, one of the things we don't do a lot in the black community is talk about how we feel and you know, we don't talk about our experiences. So, so I'll, I'll just share some of mine. Being a person that's not in the majority, I would say in any society, any organization is just a very different experience. I'm not from a victim mentality, but it's just very different. I think the things that I faced, I think a lot of us sort of see it. I'm like, OK, I believe I'm, I'm over here killing it, but I see other people getting opportunities that I would suggest are not commensurate with their performance. And so, you know, we always ask those questions. What more do I have to do <laughs> to prove to you that, quote unquote, I'm worthy? And so I think I went through those things as well. But I would say one of the things I think I did particularly well was, and Keith knows this, like I, I like people. I get energy from people. I'm a pretty good networker and things of that nature. And so I was fortunate, candidly, at General Mills is that I came along at a time when, you know, they were taking diversity very seriously. And this was way back in the early 90s. And I've never shied away from the tough conversation. I never tired of shied away from the big idea. And so I was fortunate enough to get mentors to be, you know, one of the founders of the Black Champions Network at General Mills that gave me access to our CEO, to senior leaders. And that was, I think, very important for me because one, not just the exposure, but in having and understanding how senior leaders think. That's just very important because we had to land ideas. We're asking for resources. We're asking for mentorship. We're asking them to stand with us to do something that was inherently good for the company over a long period of time. Just being able to have those conversations as a very junior person just gave me a lot of insight in terms of the trade-offs, the narratives, how we have to communicate, how we have to make sure we take an idea and position it to a large organization and get that organization to act differently. And then that's a lot of what, you know, what I spent a lot of my time, you know, sort of doing today as well. So I think that was a very defining moment for me. So that's one thing. That's the extracurricular part of my job. The other part is you got to perform. There is no free lunch in corporate America. I think the table stakes is you got to perform and you got to perform consistently. So just ensuring that you kept a high level of performance and on the things that I was passionate about, which at that time was obviously mentorship and making sure that we had a more diverse environment and a more diverse pipeline moving forward, I think were the things that I put passion behind and that, you know, I was very authentic in that. And Keith knows how that looks. <laughs> but I think that helped me, I wouldn't say I never lacked confidence, but it helped me to gain confidence in a different way. And it helped senior leadership see someone like me in a different way. So when it came time to make decisions, big decisions around where you want to put people, where you want to place people, I was a known entity. I was a known entity that they had confidence in as well. So sometimes, you're not a lot of exposure, but just enough exposure to get people to sort of at least get a wider aperture in terms of what's possible, I think, helps you. I would say it certainly helped me in my career at that time. That's great, Matt. And talking about that mentorship is really important. It's something that Ricky and I talk about quite a bit. Yeah. And going beyond mentorship is that piece around sponsorship, right? Yeah. It's yeah. kind of that next level when you actually, someone's putting their credibility on the line and yeah. tapping you on the shoulder and says, Anton is now ready. What yeah. was that like for you when you kind of got tapped on the shoulder and how has sponsorship helped you in your career? I, much like you guys do, I, I separate mentorship from sponsorship. Now, admittedly, I would say this confident because I've had a lot of conversation about this. At General Mills at the time, we didn't believe in sponsorship. You know, what we did believe in is strong mentorship. Now, I could say the effects of strong mentorship can look like sponsorship. So that's number one. 
And so I, I was fortunate to have both quote unquote official mentors who I was in official mentoring programs with. And then I had unofficial mentors who just took an interest in me because they saw the energy, they saw the passion. And I think what the beautiful thing about it is all of those mentors didn't look like me. Matter of fact, most of those mentors didn't look like me. So I, I would say my, you know, my first offering is, you know, make sure you're diverse when you're trying to put together a slate of mentors. It's just very important. Diversity works on many levels. And yes, I did have African-American mentors. There's absolutely no doubt about that. And they were great. But, you know, I got a lot of insight and I think I provided a lot of insight to people who didn't look like me, to people who didn't have my culture. And I, I think I helped them see the world in a much more expanded way. And that's the true sense around diversity and around mentorship, because it helps the whole boat sort of have a, a wider scope in terms of what's possible. So you see someone with a different face, with a different culture, all of a sudden you've been expanded. I always tell people that exposure equals expansion. I can't expand someone's thinking unless I expose them to the reality. And so I, I really try to sort of live my life around those pieces as well. And so I think mentorship, I think is fundamental. I would not have developed as a leader had I not had people telling me, don't do that. <laughs> or when you do that, here's how it looks. Here's how it looks. Or when you say that, here's how it sounds to leadership. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's not telling you to be any less authentic than you are. It is telling you that, look, there is a way to get people's attention so that they can hear you. Right. That's called effectiveness. And so I think some of those nuances is where the differences are made, because I would say as African-American, I, I wouldn't have known that. My parents wouldn't have known that. They wouldn't have known to teach me that. Right. And I had to go and learn it. And I think that's the difference is when you see BIOPOC communities coming through, especially large corporate organizations. It's never the talent. There's never the capability. It's all about the nuances, yep. right? And, and how do you articulate that you understand the nuances? And then how do you apply those nuances such that people see you in a broader way? Yeah, Anton, that's like key. I mean, because we're talking about, we know we're overeducated. We know we're over-mentored, under-sponsored. Like we know all of the facts tell us that. But right. it, it was like, what I heard you say was, there were a few things that you tweaked, <laughs> you know, there, there were a few relationships that you leveraged and people actually told you, they put you in that boat right. and they took you to where you kind of needed to be. So can you tell our listeners, you've had a, an amazing career, but can you tell our listeners what it was like when you got that first president role? I mean, we talk about like what it was like when I got the first VP role. It was like, it was so jacked up. It was like when they gave Obama the presidency, like it couldn't have been more jacked up than that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, but can you talk about when you got that first president role? I also know like you also recently got elected to the board of international paper. Like that's a big deal. So can you just talk about that? I mean, this is like you going from, an executive level to an elite level. Can you maybe talk about those experiences in that process for us? Yeah, really good question. I'll address the president one was first. I think the thing, you know, there's no doubt that it was a big accomplishment. There's no doubt about that. I think the thing that I really appreciated is that a broad set of people were genuinely happy for me as an individual. You know, it's just the next logical step in my small mind. <laughs> it's like, yep, I'm supposed to have it. I earned it. I think, you know, what I appreciate is that people were genuinely happy. And I, I think what I didn't appreciate, maybe just slightly after this, is just what it meant to the community. And not just the African-American community. You talk a little about Obama, just what it meant to the community. And I wasn't the first African-American president, let's say that. But I was the first one in a very long time when it happened to me. I think those are things that buttress me. And then the very next thing you, you understand is what a tremendous responsibility it is to be able to lead a big part of an organization 
And this is what I always tell people. It's like, look, but look, you got to perform. Part of it is getting there. Second part is staying there. Third part is excelling when you're there. I was able to sort of understand that it was a journey and that getting there was job one. You know, job two was being really good at what I did. And then job three was using my platform and my power for good, which is more in kind in terms of what we talked about. I believe my parents instilled in me as well. And so I think there was just a lot of things I would say that was just rushing through my mind, I think, at that point. And so a little bit about the board piece. Yeah, you know, uh, <laughs> the board thing was interesting. You know, I, I obviously, by the time I got to this part of your career, you always want to have the board sort of, you know, as, as something you want to do. You know, I'm still what I call a working executive. So I have a day job, <laughs> right? And so board is still like that's extracurricular activity. So I think the first thing, you know, that I, that I was fortunate to do to work with my leadership in Mars was to make sure that, hey, look, we have an understanding that I can do this, that we understand that my day job is my very first priority. But also that, you know, I'm still ambitious and I still see opportunity in my career and, and being on a board was was going to be helpful in my own executive journey. So just making sure that I had that story and that alignment with my leadership. And then, you know, as a board, you know, I'm, I'm a new board member. And so, look, I've got to go and learn a new industry, learn a new leadership team and then, you know, be able to be very effective on a public board and with, with thousands of shareholders and thousands of investors and making sure that we are executing an economic model over time, we're doing it within a value system that we set. And then, you know, we're hitting our numbers with a level of consistency as well. And so that does take on a whole different sort of leadership. And I am not operating the business, but I, I have a governance function to support the CEO and the executive team and the plan that we all align on moving forward. Yo, I told you Anton was a plan. <laughs> I told you he wasn't playing, right? <laughs> this is my guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, he running up in there with receipt. He was kind of flexing, though. He was kind of flexing a little bit. He was kind of like lightweight flexing. He was like lightweight flexing, you know? <laughs> you know when somebody says something and you say to yourself, was that a flex? <laughs> no, but, hey, but, I try not to flex. I try not to flex. Hey, no, nah, man, you can flex, man. You can you can make the muscles. We don't care, man. We 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 just so happy for you. This is why we've been so excited, man, just to talk to you. Because again, I think we talk about it sounds like a cliche sometimes, but it's so important to see what you want to be. Do you, right. you know what I mean? And, and again, as we're talking about the all skin folk ain't necessarily kinfolk. Right. That's not you, brother. Like we know you out there putting in that work and you're putting your credibility on the line, not just for your organization, but for your community. You know, and right. for that, like that's why we wanted to give you a platform to be able to speak about that. You know, so we're I know we're joking around and we have a good time, but I want to make sure we give you those roses, though, man. I appreciate it, man. But uh, I, like I said, I had a great role model starting my parents. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's good. We're going to switch gears just a little bit and just talk about kind of what's going on in the world today, because I think yeah. that's really important. And especially, you lived in Minneapolis for a long time. Antonio. Long time. Yes. And obviously last summer with George Floyd and the death of George Floyd, and I know you knew a lot of people in that community that was impacted by his murder. Can you just talk a little bit about what it was like for you as a Black executive leading a big organization? Yeah. Um, when you saw that video come out, how that kind of changed or did it change the way that you were leading or how you had to respond to the organization? Well, first of all, thank you guys for asking me about this. I must say, you know, you've been an African-American for any length of time. It's not new in our community. It's just not new. I mean, it just happened to be caught on cameras. It was almost an irrefutable case. But for some reason, it struck the conscience 
know, people all around the world. And I think the thing that was painful for me is you're right. I, and I was still living in Minneapolis at the time. I was commuting to my current job before we moved. The interesting part is that, you know, the Twin Cities is a beautiful place. You know, we were there for a long time. We've seen it sort of, you know, migrate over time. It's much more diverse. It's a very well-run you know, city, very well-run state, well-meaning people. And, you know, it's quite a few corporate headquarters there, which is why I was there, you know, for working with General Mills for so long. So it was painful to see it, first of all. And, you know, where it happened, you know, I've been there, I don't know, a thousand times, right on those steps around, around where it happened, right in front of the store. And so I, I think just personally, it just sort of took me back. And I felt bad for the community. And that's first and foremost. Now, secondly, and just sort of the impact that it's had, I would tell you, I got a call from our CEO, Grant Reed, and you know, asked for an emergency meeting probably within seven days after it happened. You know, it was me, the family, a couple other senior leaders as well, and sort of saying, hey, look, let's just all acknowledge this is not a good thing. This is bad. This is not something that our company believes in. Well, how do we want to respond? So I think the first thing that I felt in that conversation, Keith, was like, wow, man, I am at the right place at the right time. I took that responsibility and still take that responsibility, you know, incredibly seriously. You know, look, look, when you have people on the phone sort of saying, look, this is not who we are. And what can we do within our own organization to make sure that it's better? What can we do to contribute to the solution within our own community? And the community we control is the 135,000 worldwide employees at Mars, Inc. And so to me, it was just one of those conversations where you don't plan it. It's not on a calendar, but, you know, you have to respond around what does your value system say? What is your ambition around who you say you want to be as an organization? And we, we consider ourselves very much of a purpose-driven organization. And how do you make that become a reality inside of your organization? And how does it reflect itself in your actions as well? And so I, I was very pleased, A, to be able to be around the table, to be able to have a real conversation, and then to be able to sort of drive plans to go and do something about it. That was, that was very good for me. So what do we do? Like other companies, look, we made a proclamation with wrote a check. We tell people those are the easiest things to do in the world for companies. But one of the other things that we did was as a part of sort of the money that we committed, we said, hey, look, it's not going to be a writer check when we're done. We were tasked, and I tasked people to sort of say, yes, it's great that the family has allowed us to sort of invest in these types of things, but let's make sure that those things have meaning, that they actually solve problems. And then when all the cameras and all the media attention is going away, we're still doing the work to help solve the problem. And so we continue to be able to do that work, investing in, in things like the King Center. We're going to invest somewhere upwards of $20 million of cash and in-kind donations to our local communities. This local community has to be focused on making sure that we are creating economic opportunity for bio, particularly African-Americans, making sure we're investing in entrepreneurs and ensuring that the money and the resources that we insert meet specific outcomes over time. That's the key part of it. We always tell people we're not responding to the event. We are taking an opportunity to invest because of something that is so blatant in our team. It's not a political thing, but it very much is that when you have weight and scale, you know, what you're going to be judged on is what do you do with that? How do you advance the problem or help solve the problem? And so I think that's the mentality that we've had. And I've been leading a lot of that, at least in the face of that. Obviously, there's a lot of people that are involved as well. I mean, I'm really proud of sort of what we have done in the short term. You know, what I believe we continue to be doing in the future as well. And, and, it, and it's, you know, it's a privilege, to be honest with you, kid, to be able to, again, be on the scene to have the family have the sense enough to reach out to, you know, that their highest ranking African-American officer and support me and the organization and be very steadfast in terms of what we're trying to get done over time. Again, we commend you for that work, you know, Anton. I mean, I think it's just not easy. I mean, 
leaders are, they step up, you know, when they're supposed to. It's like, if you're a true leader, no one really has to ask you, can you lead? (laughs) You know this, right? So I'm curious to hear more of what it's been like for you as a Black leader to lead during these times. Because again, like you're sitting on the board now, you're, you know, you're leading for your organization, and I know you're active in the community. I know that many of our underrepresented executives have struggled, you know, with the trauma, the stress, some of the tokenism following the murder of George Floyd and others, you know, that just haven't gotten that type of spotlight. And I know that some of our white executives have also struggled with how and when to engage on these racial tensions. And they really want to be good allies, but sometimes they really just don't know how and they create the worst mistake ever by just being silent. So, and now we got like the, all of the stuff with COVID, right? So what have you done and what have been, like, and I know you've talked about specifically some of those things, but have there been other things that you've done to circumvent, you know, to make that easier for people to kind of find their voice? And yeah. and if so, like, what have been some of those challenges that you face? Because, I mean, look, we don't have all the answers, but people are coming to us, you know, for answers. So this is our opportunity <laughs> to try to talk about some of that stuff. Well, well, you know, first of all, thank you for that open, because, I mean, all those things are right and then some. But again, I think, I always tell people, you look, when you have these kinds of things, you have to take advantage of the opportunity. It's like, hey, look, if we're talking about race now, let's be able to say black and white and racism and all those hard words that are very uncomfortable people to say in the room together. But also, let's tear it apart. Let's give people an understanding of the experience. But let's talk about the promise around how do we make it better, regardless of what color you are, where you come from. You know, I always tell people just as a leader, my job is to make sure that everybody that works for me has an opportunity to self-actualize. I don't care who they are. I don't care where they come from. I don't care what their culture is, what their color is. My job is to help them self-actualize. Because, you know, in the foundation of civil rights, it was all about equality. Just give us an equal chance. That's all we're saying. We got an equal chance. We feel like, look, we, we, we will take that and sort of run with it. So I think it has been a beautiful opportunity to have conversations that we probably would not have normally had. You know, if I had a, a Caucasian coworker would come up to me and sort of say, I get it now. I, you know, I always understood racism intellectually, but when it's in your face, you have to deal with it and you have to develop a point of view around what that means. And you have to figure out how do you want to work to help eradicate or at least to be a positive agitator to make sure we get to a, a better place. And so I think it opened up an aperture for us to have conversation. That's number one. Number two, back to your point around, I can imagine being someone who, who may not be of, of African-American culture or biopic culture and sort of saying, all right. I got it. I understand. What can I do? I don't exactly know what to do. And I don't want to do or say something that's going to appear off kilter. I think it's giving people space. I think it's giving people grace. It's helping them to understand that, look, no one expects you or anybody else to be perfect about this conversation. What we do expect you to be is to be active and supportive in the conversation and then give them very specific ways and ways they can do that. One of the things I try to do, and I haven't done it with my team yet, is now I've always had primarily Caucasian leadership teams is that usually one time during a year, I'll take all of them and we'll go to a church service, which is typically a classic African-American church service. And I do it for two reasons. One, to give them an understanding around another part of my life that's important to me, but also give them an understanding around, wow, how does it feel to be in a wholly different cultural experience? Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's just like, and you know, and church is a very welcoming place, particularly African-American churches. So it's not like it's aggressive, but it's just like, wow. And so I do that to sort of say, I'm not doing this to make you feel uncomfortable. I am helping you to understand what life could feel like in the quote unquote minority. That's our everyday existence in most corporate organizations. 
And so we have to develop mechanisms to keep our authenticity to still be successful in a construct that literally was not built for us to be successful. And so that's a lot of extra machinations that we have to go through that claim that other people don't. And other people don't even have to think about going through. Now, I'm not saying that other people don't have their own issues. Trust me, women have their issues. You know, a variety of folks have their issues. But it, it is helpful to people to sort of understand what you go through. Because I think once they have experience, then they can have understanding. They can have understanding. Then we can have a dialogue about, okay, like, how do we all help to make this thing better for everybody? So those are the kind of things I think I've been able to do with some of my colleagues and open up conversation and to build broad support. It's one thing for Anton, the African-American leader, to come up and sort of pound his head and say, we should do. That's interesting. That may not always be effective. How do we join hand, join forces, network? Because we all want a better workplace. We all want a better society. So how do we do that collectively and effectively over time? And I think that's been the opportunity I think we've had to sort of open up the conversation and to try to make real change and to recognize that it won't change tomorrow. But the first thing I told the family is like, this is going to happen again and again and again. So let's not react to the situation. Let's react to the circumstance that led up to the situation and how that impacts our society. And what can we do again to bring positive change? Man, is that science that I'm hearing dropping, Keith? Is that <laughs> really like, hey, I'm telling you, no, I really, really appreciate, you know, this perspective. I'm, again, we all have to think about what happened to George Ford or what's happened to other individuals. I mean, that could have easily been one of us. Do, do, do you know what I mean? Like could have easily, I mean, because look, if we're not at work, I mean, we might have on chucks, some shorts, <laughs> you know, a white Ooh, t-shirt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they, they don't know what, what, what's going on. But I think it's important to kind of have these discussions and kind of get to the bottom of it. Because, again, this is something we have to deal with every day. But, again, one of the pieces that we are doing our show is like, look, we done spent some time here talking. And I know it seems like we're getting emotional, you know, about stuff. But what we want to really be able to do is just to give uh, everybody some receipts, you know, mm-hmm. here, right? Because you can't make up the receipts, right? Because the receipts exist, we have a platform to be able to speak about this. So today, what we want to be able to do is show you that Anton is a unicorn, right? We'll share a couple of receipts on Black executive (laughs) representation at the top. As much as we strive to be there, it's not normal right Mm -hmm. now, right? We'll also share receipts on why being intentional about your career plan is so very important to getting to the top. Yeah, and uh, receipt number one is a report that was put out by USA Today that showed of the 279 top executives at the top 50 largest corporations in America, only five of those 279 executives are black, which is less than 2%. We know we're 12% of the population. And I don't know what your experience is, Anton. And on boards, there's at least 11% black representation on boards at these top 50 companies. But again, most of those only have one black board member (laughs) at the end of the day. So you're still like in that situation where you're the only, regardless. Yeah, yeah. It is real. I think the the interesting part about it is, believe it or not, those numbers have gotten slightly better over time. (laughs) I know those numbers. (laughs) That's the sad part. It's interesting because I think And we're still a small enough community where most of us know each other or at least have networked with each other. And so I think we can depend on each other for certain things. And and we're starting to get into, I call it sort of the second generation of us as well. So if you think about Vernon Jordan's era as sort of the first generation of sort of corporate board people, we're starting to get into that second generation. And so we're not as new an entity as one would think. Now, we're still small in number and Mm -hmm. small in 
percentage. But, you know, it's not unusual. But I, I think the thing where we are with board representation now is, okay, okay, now you're here, but how do you have impact? Yep. How do you have impact in your governance role? How do you have impact in helping the CEO and the executive team shape the company in ways that you think are more progressive, whatever progressive means to you or whatever you align on as a board and as an executive team? So, again, just because you're on a board is one thing. You know, what you do with that seat, I think, is the most important thing in doing what shareholders expect you to do, which is to hit the plan. <laughs> but secondly, you know, you want an ongoing concern that is attractive and that is getting, you know, talent on a basis that's going to allow you to sort of replicate your, your economic model as well. And so it's a very different way to influence in a boardroom than it would if I'm the boss and I have operational control over activity. And so I think it's learning how to do that effectively is forging partnerships is working with your CEO and you know, other key board, board members to make sure that you're running an agenda that's going to allow this company to be around another 50 or 100 years. But that, in essence, is your opportunity, your expectation. Good point. Hey, so receipt number two. So one snapshot of the racial stratification in private industry can be seen in the ratio of those at the top compared with those at the bottom. Right. So for white people, the ratio of service workers and laborers compared with senior level management is roughly seven to one. And that's according to a 2018 statistic compiled in the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. For black people, that ratio is one hundred and five to one. OK, black people make up 13.4 percent of the population, but they only represent eight percent of white collar professionals a number that has stayed steady since actually 2013. And this is according to the Center for Talent Innovation. And this helps explain the wealth gap that KP and I speak about all of the time. That's why we have been working so hard to change the paradigm, but also to help you try to get your bread. Well, what's interesting about that, because you know some of these statistics come out over last year as well, but even at equivalent educational levels, you have a bit of stratification between the haves and the have-nots. And so, you know, it, that becomes sort of the equity piece. And what do we do with the bread that we earn? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And how do we preserve it and grow it and make it generational wealth over time? And so I still think just as a, just as an African-American community, you know, we have a ways to go on that. So one is making sure we get people fully employed. Second is just making sure that we have an understanding around how to live within our means and have a much longer view in terms of how we build wealth, whatever that wealth is, over time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'll go ahead here and read uh, receipt number three. And this just has to do with being intentional about your career path and why it's so important. Because according to a study by Forbes, the board members of Fortune 100 companies usually select internal CEO candidates in 79% of the cases. So having that intentional career plan, staying with your company, that longevity is important. Similarly, only 11% of the 222 CEOs in long-living organizations that were studied were actually occupied by outsiders. So it's really important in the most successful long-living firms, it was even lower just in terms of picking external candidates, like 3%. Yeah. of like the really, really long-term, like those companies like General Mills and International Paper, you tend to get selected internally, which why it's so important to be intentional about your career plan. And, and you've talked about how you've mapped yours out. And right. This is proof is in the pudding right here. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And I think that there's reasons behind it. Look, by the time you sit on the top of an organization, like you, the one thing you need to have is incredible knowledge of that organization. You need to know how it works, how it ticks, 
you need to have relationships up and down the line as, as well, because by the time you get in that CEO seat, you don't need all that anymore, <laughs> right? It's not a training ground kind of seat. Like you need to hit the ground running because you're only in one of two situations. One, things are bad and you get better quickly. Two, things are good and your job is not to screw it up, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, that, those are the two edges of what you see this. And so whatever side of the spectrum that you're on, there's not a lot of time, particularly if it's a public company, you have, you have obviously shareholders and quite a few of them are fairly distributed. And then, you know, you have a smaller set of really large shareholders here that are in funds and things of that nature. So it's just important that there is understanding of that executive, that there is support for that executive in the organization, and that that executive does not lose time in terms of advancing, you know, both the financial model and the organizational model as well. So many great points there. I mean, those are just a few receipts. Again, yeah. I think it probably proves that Anton's a unicorn. I'm just going to say that. That's right. This brother, <laughs> he don't have a horn in his head. I don't have a horn. <laughs> <laughs> and we're proud of him. So let's talk about a few secrets that we got for you today. Yep. So we're going to have a double dose of secrets for you today. We will provide three secrets on what you can do to get on the executive career path. And Anton will provide some secrets on what leaders can do to build equitable and inclusive cultures for their organizations during these tumultuous times. Here are the three secrets that you can take to get on the executive career path. Number one, find the right roles. Number two, build your brand. Number three, build your board of directors. So Keith, talk a little bit about secret number one. Yeah, that's secret number one, to find the right roles. This is really, really important. And Anton's a, a perfect example of why a career map is so important. You really have to have an understanding of the roles and the experiences that you'll need to understand where you want to go. If you don't know where you're going to go, you're just going to scatter all over the place, right? I mean, again, I knew that I had a finance career path and wanted to be CFO. And so, but I mapped out what are those roles that I actually need to get and what those experiences that I have to have in order to get there, right? So reaching the top also requires that you have a variety of roles and experiences. you got to be able to manage a P&L. That's an absolute necessity uh, to getting to the top. And just as an example, nearly half of all Fortune 100 CEOs were actually at least a divisional CFO during their career. So having that background is super, super important. Great point. So secret number two, uh, and I'll tee this one up for you, Anton, here in terms of like building your own brand, right? So as a former marketing executive and a president for an iconic consumer brand, I know you know the value of brand management in terms of stepping forward with new opportunities and assignments, taking smart risks and leading great teams. What more about that secret would you like to maybe talk to people about? One thing that I like to talk about is you have to separate your job from your leadership. Mm. You don't have to have a title to lead, right? Because, you know, when I, when I look down the pike and I, I look at our pipeline, I'm looking for leaders, you know, because, you know, look, our corporate systems are very good at making sure we get in sharp people, that they have capability, they're doing their jobs, right? You're going to get a slate. It's like, okay, everybody can do the job. Who can lead? Who can differentiate? So my whole thing is making sure that you start developing your leadership skills mm. as early as possible, making sure those leadership skills are showing at every stage. I think that's the first thing. The, the second thing is, and I think you hit on this a little bit earlier, is just make sure that you have a diverse network. I always tell people, look, if you're in marketing or finance, don't just know the finance people. Don't just know the marketing people. You got to give breath about the organization. Because yep. if your expectation is you're going to sit on top of an organization at any level one day, you're going to need to know a little something about everything that that organization does 
And you have to know a little bit about the sun, the people who are doing it as well, because you're not ascending alone. (laughs) (laughs) You're ascending with a crew of people. And trust me, you will need all of them (laughs) to do your job well. So just make sure that there is breath in your networking. And then the third thing I would say is, look, be you. There is not a perfect model out there to be as a leader. You know, what you want to do is to be authentic. You want to be consistent. You want to be courageous because people see those qualities more than you think. And so don't go into a situation and try to, I've seen people do this all the time. How does the company want me to act? This is the way I'm going to act because quote unquote, that's the formula. There is no formula. The formula is the best you you can be is how you are. Then how do you understand how to leverage that in unique ways? Mm-mm-mm. Okay, man, I like that secret. We're going to have to play this again, Keith. What, I, I got a question for you. When the book coming out, Anton? When, 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 when is the book coming out, Anton? When, when the book coming out, man? I, I, I do have a few book titles in my head. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, We're going to have to work with you offline on that. I, I see something coming, man. So secret number three. Secret number three, I talk about this all the time, but build your board of directors. You have to have people around you to provide sound, unvarnished advice, right? They're going to, meaning they're going to keep it 100 with you. People who will advocate for you, people who will have your back and can provide support during the good and the bad times. I mean, I think we heard Keith talk about this in previous episodes. We've heard people tell me information I've shared with you. We heard today, unprompted, Anton said some of the same things. Do you know what I mean? Like, this is what uh, was important. So this board of directors is important to be able to be intentional about putting these people in your corner who you can go to and you can bounce things off of and can help right size your expectations, but can also help get you, you know, to the right level. Yeah, I I think the only thing I would add there as well is that 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 is a very much of a two-way street. And and I think I've I've seen a mistake making people... People actually do a good job of putting together a board of directors, but then they don't listen to them. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, exactly. I'm like, you know, you can't put this great board of director for all the things you say that they're, they're there to support you, give you good, but you got to be able to listen too as well. Right. I, I will tell you, just in my own instance, it took me a while to sort of hear what people were telling me, you know, because I was so caught up in my ego very early in my career. You know, I've always been aggressive, done, you know, I've, I've been very consistent in hitting my numbers, but I, I wasn't listening to the people that I went to. And so I think once I started listening and understanding and, and got out of my own way, I, I, you know, I started to flourish with less friction. If you're going to do it, listen to them. <laughs> right. That's good advice. Probably the best advice. <laughs> listen, <laughs> Exactly. Maybe the best advice. That's right. <laughs> so we promised you a double dose today and we're just going to let Anton just take this one. Right. So Anton, for leaders, what are a few secrets that you could provide in terms of building and implementing a diverse and inclusive culture, especially in this kind of post-George Floyd era? Yeah, really good question. And I think it's so appropriate for the era that we that we live in and we will continue to live in. You know, we just came out with the latest census results and we are more diverse than we thought we were <laughs> in the United States. And so this is real. So I'll start off with this, Keith. Diversity is a fact. Inclusion is a choice. That's how I really try to help people to sort of understand that. Look, we we can go and recruit diversity. We can make sure that we are, quote unquote, representative. But, you know, inclusion takes intention. It takes consistency. In some cases, it takes doing things that are difficult. In some cases, it takes doing things that are outside of your comfort zone as well. So my first advice to leaders is 
you know, we talk about vulnerability on a very high level, but you have to be vulnerable because it, sometimes leaders are stepping into places that they really don't know what they're doing, but that's okay. You got to be able to live with that vulnerability as a leader, and you have to be able to listen, to learn, and to adapt from what people are telling you, right? That's just, just very important. So there, there's a sense of transparency, there's a sense of humility, and then just like I would suggest that we listen to our board of directors, I think leaders have to listen to the people that are giving them insight as well. And people have to see you acting on that insight, right? So there has to be some action behind it. That's the first thing. The second thing is I would say, just be willing to have uncomfortable conversations because there's nothing about race and inclusion that's easy. And it's not easy because as a country, we've never talked about it. <laughs> you know, it's not a subject we just go and sort of have a casual conversation about. It's usually in the midst of very intense situations where we're trying to fix something or learn something very fast so we don't mess something up or, you know, whatever. So I would say just be comfortable about being uncomfortable. And again, I think people will see that. They will understand that. They'll see people taking the effort to be in a space that they know that they're still learning how to be in as well. And I'd say the third thing, just I just try to practice this. Be bold. Take a chance on somebody. Take a chance on somebody. I try to make sure that, uh, you know, particularly when you see slates and interview a lot of people and most companies are very good at making sure we got good people on the slates, diverse people on the slate, so on and so forth. Sometimes you just got to take a chance on somebody. And let me just say this, it may not always work out and you may have to be okay with that. But sometimes you just got to take a chance because the one person you take a chance on can change your company, can change your outlook, can change your business. And so I say, be willing to do that. And I'm not saying take a chance on everybody. I wouldn't suggest that. Look, I have had to take chances on people. And I will tell you, I have a good batting average <laughs> on that. I think that those things have been much more uplifting and positive than they have been risky. And so that's what I would say. Those are the three things I would say around leaders, particularly in this day and age. Man, Anton, man, I'm trying to tell you, brother, man, we knew this was going to be fire, you know, but we didn't know exactly what you was going to bring today. So look, this has been like some amazing advice and we are so, so very appreciative that you've been able to spend this time with us today, my brother. You can find so many more of uh, these resources and these secrets and receipts that we share with you today by going to our website, secrets.com, and looking in the show notes for this episode. But I want to make sure that we take some time right now to just thank Anton for being on the show. Because again, this was amazing to just to be able to hear his journey, how he's progressed in his career and what he's doing to keep building up this village that we talk about, you know, here. So again, appreciate that. Keith, I'll turn it over to you because I know you're going to end this just right. Look at you. <laughs> no, I just want to add my thanks to my brother, Anton, as well. We really appreciate you being a part of this and helping us build out this platform. And again, shout out to all of our listeners and fans. And we told you, Season three is not going to disappoint, right? <laughs> going to bring you some gems this year. And so here's the first diamond. Here's the first diamond right here. Not even a diamond in the rush. This brother is polished. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. I like that. I like that. <laughs> Absolutely. This brother is polished. So. I'll exit where I started. Just, hey, thank you guys for doing what you do. It's needed. I Hopefully it's changing people's lives and giving them more confidence to do what they do in a way that they do it every day. So I just really appreciate what you're about and what you're doing as well. And thank you for having me. No question, no problem. So, and then look, and what I'll say, KP and I have a lot of fun on the podcast, but we also want to 
help you get what you deserve. And this is to our listeners, right? So we want you to go out there, write them reviews on Apple, get you some of that gear, some of that merchandise, but also more importantly, check out our coaching services and our new online courses that are coming soon, right? And we're working on some new merchandise designs as well. And I am positive that you're going to like all of them. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And while we sign off, thanks again for bringing those gems and time. And if you didn't know what intention looked like before, now you know. So thanks again for listening to Secrets. And remember, when we share, you transform. Peace. 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 Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed yet another gem from KP and PR. In fact, one listener said that Secrets makes me smarter every time I listen, and we hope you agree. If you are motivated and excited after listening to Keith and Ricky, please subscribe to our podcast, share with friends, and donate via Patreon. Check us out on the web at www.secrets.com. That's www.c-cretes.com to get more information about our secret services. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.